Dr. Marvin Berman is the founder and president of the Quiet Mind Foundation, a public, nonprofit research foundation and outpatient healthcare practice. The Quiet Mind Foundation provides neurofeedback therapy within the greater Philadelphia area. I've never heard of neurofeedback therapy, nor had I heard of the Quiet Mind Foundation. Uh, that is until a parent of one of my students told me about the progress she'd seen in her son since they started working with the foundation. I looked into the Quiet Mind Foundation, the research on bio and neurofeedback, uh, although you know I've only started that, and I've been sort of interested ever since. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Morgan Burnham. So thanks for all the supplementary material. I have to admit I didn't go through it, you know, the way that I should have. If I wasn't well, you know, there's going to be a quiz. Program. <laughs> There'll be a I'm, quiz on Tuesday. I'm going to Tuesday might I might have enough time, but I did I did go through some of it. Oh, good. Well, pick up where you left off. Well, let me start maybe just for the sake of context, if you don't mind introducing yourself and and maybe you know, um, I guess also just for a disclaimer. Maybe we should keep private uh, the 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 actual student's name um, through whom we know each other. But other than that, I've completely forgotten. <laughs> maybe maybe better uh, better that way. So, so, so why don't I'm, you? Sorry. Yeah. No. So I'm uh, Marvin Berman. I have a role as the president of the Quiet Mind Foundation, which I founded in 2000 as a nonprofit research and consultation entity that was committed to bringing more scientific validation and understanding to approaches to addressing neurodegenerative, neuropsychiatric, and neurodevelopmental disorders that did not involve the use of drugs or pharmacology, but were rather focused on more non-invasive approaches like biofeedback, photobiomodulation, transcranial electrical stimulation, and things of that sort, as well as the use of functional medicine, which doesn't really address using medications per se, but is trying to locate the lifestyle and other toxicity-based sources of health issues. So we've been working on developing research programs to validate the types of devices and techniques that we've found to be helpful. And so we promote those on our website. We provide education and consultation to professionals in their application. And we also do public education around these ideas and approaches. Um, and then I suppose now we're focused very much on the photobiomodulation aspect and how it integrates with brainwave biofeedback as a treatment for dementia, Parkinson's, and other neuropsychiatric and traumatic brain injury conditions. You, you sound very busy. 
Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, but you know, it's, it's the good busy of doing what you would do for free. Hmm. Beautiful. Obviously your interests are deeply scientific, even on face. So no doubt you have a, a long academic history. Um, but I also get the sense that you, you probably also have a personal history with, um, if not these topics, then certainly that root topic that you seem to allude to in regards to. Certainly. Um, well, ha- I mean, having, sorry, just to punctuate that, yeah, so, sort of yeah, having I mean that, a resistance true. to more invasive approaches to this. Hmm. It sounded like you had a resistance to med, you know, sort of it, not uh, medicine, w- not medicine outright, but sort of just using medicine. Um, well, what I, I mean, I trained as a psychologist. So my orientation was decidedly different than if I had gone to medical school. Um, And I was particularly interested in how early developmental experiences in childhood affected both cognitive and behavioral and motor functional behavior, certainly in people. I grew up with people who took medication for all sorts of things. And I certainly was exposed to their relative value as well as the side effects that people had to struggle with. Um, And I think on a personal level, the focus on dementia probably came from seeing my grandmother and then my mother who had a a head trauma history get, you know, very little value from the medications that they were prescribed. And I kept wondering what, you know, what were the neurologists doing that they hadn't quite figured out what to give that my grandmother or my mother that was going to be really helpful for their memory and their cognitive functioning and their pain and all that. And so I then started looking at the literature in neurology about studying the brain and how the brain changed in in the course of developing memory loss. And what I found was rather clear. They, They had done many, many studies showing that as people progress in dementia and with regardless of the type that the slower brain waves, the slower uh, frequency brainwave activity, the amplitude of those brain waves went up and the amplitude of the faster brain waves went down. And this was consistently, repeatedly documented in study after study after study. So I then started looking for, so what did you do with that fact in terms of designing treatment? Nothing. And that's when I went, oh, of course, they didn't really have a strategy therapeutically to address electrical activity because neurologists don't do biofeedback. So they wouldn't have even thought of it. They, they would have thought about a medication. So, of course, they went down the road of medication, but none of those medications were really going to address the specificity of what they were coming up with in the research. That's when I looked at the biofeedback literature and saw that 
there was about 40 or 50 years of research showing that seizure disorders, epilepsy, could be treated effectively, very effectively, using brainwave biofeedback training. But none of those papers were ever published in the Journal of Neurology. So they had no clue. Hmm. It was really like, oh, these are the silos of knowledge that are being developed and then nobody's, they're not crossing over and talking to each other. So that's when I went, oh, well, let's take the data from neurology. And what we'll do is a biofeedback research program where we do biofeedback to decrease the slow wave amplitudes and increase the fast wave amplitudes. And let's see what happens to people's memories who have dementia. They got better. So that's when we realized that you could affect a change in the slope of decline, but you weren't still treating, you weren't really curing or treating the underlying pathology, you know, whatever the process was that was causing the dementia, you weren't really resolving that on a biological level. You were improving the slope of decline, which is a good thing, but it's not the whole solution. So that's kind of where it all got started from. Fascinating. I'm just jotting down questions because I, I want to lay some context, but I want to come back to more specific questions. I've heard biofeedback and I've seen in, in the things that you said, I mean, uh, neurofeedback. What is biofeedback? It sounds like more of the, the umbrella term than neurofeedback. Exactly. That's what all is biofeedback? It. So biofeedback is the use of some kind of measurement technology that allows people to gain a sense of instrumental control over a physiological function. So if I give you a thermometer and I have, say, hold it, and you watch the temperature change from whatever it is when you get a hold of it to 95 degrees, and you time how long that takes to happen, if you do that every day for two weeks and you think about your hand getting warmer, you'll see that the time it takes for you to reach 95 degrees starts going down. Is that true? So, is that true? Yeah, that's true for like the last hundred years. So, so watching the thermo thermometer, you can actually start to control your temperature. Absolutely. You can learn what you're actually learning is how to control the opening and closing of your peripheral vascular system. I, I, that, that sounds fascinating. I think that might strike people. Oh as being, yeah. This is not new news. Right. But that might strike. Uh, surely you've done this long enough to interact with people to think that that example sounds kind of far-fetched where I, Oh, I, I guess so. Yeah. My inroad, my inroad to sort of even playing ball with some of these ideas. Um, not that I like defaulted to, to any stark cynicism or anything like that, but I, but I certainly, I was trying to, you know, make sense of it. I'd never no, heard it just, before. But yeah, the first thing I thought, exposure. the first thing I thought of was, well, if I watched my heart rate, you know, on my watch, I, I know that if I've watched that long enough, I can actually start to regulate my heart rate. And that, that was exactly, I think, the exactly first. it. That's but exactly the, it. The thermometer that that surprised me as your example. I would, well, I didn't know that. So if you take it one step further, if I hook you up to an EEG machine and you start watching your brainwave activity, and I start giving you feedback like a, a green light every time you increase the uh, amplitude of alpha, 
in a very short period of time, you're going to figure out how to increase alpha. If, if you don't mind, and I'm sorry if these are really naive and fundamental questions, can can I start with the heart rate thing? And then can sure. we can we pave the road to the EEG? Because I think I feel very safe with the heart rate thing and I'm and I I trust you, but I want to know how, how we get there. So with the oh, heart sure. rate thing, I, I know through you know, whatever, I, uh, a number of different activities that I can monitor my heart rate and that while I monitor my heart rate, even forget two weeks. If I sit down and look at it for five minutes, I can actually start to to control my heart rate, and I do that through breathing. Um, right, and I can exactly. do that also with some sort of form, you know, of like very casual meditation where I'm trying to not re- let my mind run away, and I'm also controlling my breathing. That seems to correlate with heart rate. Yep, that all makes sense to me. What what am I doing with the thermometer? Having never done this experiment, I'm wondering what am I also controlling breathing? Is that the thing that starts to regulate the actual temperature? So, certainly, somewhat, somewhat, but it's it's going to be that plus muscle relaxation plus a an internal a focus on on your internal state. Interesting. And so the more that you focus on your internal state, you're going to be changing the biochemistry and the electrophysiology in your body, which means you're going to be changing your brain state. I think, I don't know, 30 years ago, the heart rate thing would have sounded a little woo woo or even like yogic or something that the when we move to the the sort of um i forget what you were calling it the sort of vascular the peripheral vascular the peripheral vascular the, the thermometer example i imagine that that would strike a lot of people as also sounding very uh yogic or like kind of, i don't know sort of mystic even but but i definitely yeah i am fine with the the premise that the more we pay attention to our body, we may blow our minds as to what we can actually begin to control. Yeah, I think that it's more that we've been conditioned to think that we don't have control over what's been called autonomic functions. Mm. And that's just not true. That's all. It's, you know, it's not true. And, and what are autonomic functions? Um, the the things that we considered, include? yeah, the things that we considered to be automatic and not in in any way uh, under any kind of volitional control or conscious control. That's all. I think what's interesting for me is as soon as you head down that road, you actually you might get more literature that's sort of religious <laughs> and and associated with yoga and breathing practices and meditation. Um, it has nothing to do with, yeah, but it has nothing to do with that. Uh, although I think we started to say things like, um, you're paying attention to breathing, you're paying attention to your inner state, you're regulating your thoughts that starts to sound meditative. Only because we got, we didn't get raised in the Judeo Christian tradition to use words like pay attention to your own self, Mm. except except with with phrases like to thine own self be true. So if we start with to thine own self be true, then we are 
squarely in the domain of what I'm talking about. Right. And I, I, I hope I don't sound like I'm disagreeing, but I do think no. to, to your example of the Judeo Christian thing, it does start to sound very Eastern. Only because, only because people in those traditions, I mean, people in the Christian traditions have been taught to think about things like paying attention to yourself in that way as being something outside of the Orthodox Christian philosophy, which I don't see as being true even a little bit. So, I mean, you know, let's go back and read Thomas Merton. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll get that paying attention to yourself is in no way antithetical or in or antagonistic or anything of the sort, but people get raised in, or people get presented with these ideas about self-regulation as being from an Eastern tradition because Western medicine didn't take those things into consideration until, you know, people uh, like Herbert Benson at Harvard started studying meditation, except he took away all of the trappings of meditation and basically had people say, you know, he give them an, an, a word out of the dictionary and have them repeat that word. Hmm. And they got the same result. So he was just talking, he talked about it as the relaxation response. Hmm. And there was literally nothing different about what he was doing with his subjects than what people might consider Eastern meditative practices or techniques, but he was sitting in a in a you know in a research laboratory at Harvard, telling them to sit there and repeat the number one in their head, and that was it. Right. And he hooked them up and measured, and they had exactly the same response as the people who were chanting this, that, or the other mantra. Hmm. Interesting. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because when I was going through the neurofeedback thing, there did there did seem a lot of crossover between what you were describing as neurofeedback and what we might describe as meditation. And I I definitely heed your point that there's yeah that I, that's I, an if you that's an issue of titles and and really it's this it really relaxation response yeah yeah and I think it it really has to do more with the ignorance of the people who are being exposed to these technologies and the fact that they don't have a, a, an appropriate uh, lexicon of terminology to use that doesn't have anything at all to do with anything esoteric or, you know, nothing at all to do with that. It, it has nothing to do with that at all. But if you don't have the language to talk about self-regulation, then you're going to start using other kinds of terms because those are the only terms that you really have available, but they're in no way, you know, really describing they're, they're loaded with all of the cultural and other baggage 
that comes along with those terms, which in one culture, you know, is completely acceptable. And in another makes people, you know, want to have their head, you know, explode. That's all. I, I'm going to, I want to go back and continue to lay some foundation here, but I want to dive into, you know, if, if you've ever seen any of the, any of the other podcast episodes, there's most of them are explicitly religious. And, and uh, I, I love, I love some of these ideas. D don't be fearful. They're, they're, uh, they would all be, um, I'd be burned at the stake for every episode that's aired so far. So don't really, totally. Well, uh, well, I hope it definitely that's not, doesn't I hope align. That, with I the, hope that's not. Yeah, I, I don't want you putting yourself at risk here. No, I think these are all. I think what's fascinating is this was supposed to be the scientific uh, pot episode, yeah. and, and it will, and it definitely will be that. But I, I love that religion keeps yeah, coming. Yeah, this up is because, straight up. Yeah, this is straight up neuroscience. But, and but I love that that religion seems to like keep following us around, even if people want to sort of forget about it. I think you know, there's. I think Joseph Campbell said once that. Uh, um, he said he visited Japan and the first thing he thought was imagine a place where the foundational story wasn't where we were thrown out of a garden <laughs> and we could still live in that garden and he's like that was Japan where we were we weren't separate from na nature we were sort of like interweaved interwoven with nature and I felt a lot of that in what you were saying this sort of like how this story right. that we were raised on could actually screw us up in ways that we would have never accounted for. And now we need different words. We need to, well, you know, people in the will same way, and think that, that it's Eastern and you're like, it doesn't have to be Eastern. Just paying attention to yourself. Yeah. And it's, I mean, what's, what's more Western than to thine own self be true. Right. But there's also, okay. <laughs> but anyway, but, so in that, in that regard, you know, 30 years ago, people started sp spraying glyphosate, you know, Roundup to kill the weeds and make sure that their vegetables and things grew better. And now we're finding out that Roundup glyphosate is a carcinogen that is a serious contributor to the proliferation of autism. Hmm. We didn't know. Now we do. But what's interesting about our scientific process is that there is room, not only room, but it's built into the scientific process that we are to go back and revisit that and see if that was effective. And yet our religious traditions do not have that function built in. And so oh. you would strike people as being sort of very interesting if they're interested in religion for saying, hey, this is a foundational story that had an adverse effect that might be first, second, third, fourth order that we would have never anticipated. And now guess what? We don't pay attention to ourselves. We, we, we don't know that we have way more control. We have a word like automated, um, what was the word? Uh, auto, autonomic functions. Where autonomic, yeah. Autonomic functions. And yet they're not necessarily automatic or if they are, they're not entirely out of our control. Right, uh, we only thought they were. We only thought they were because we didn't know any better. Right. Our religious, whoever, whoever wrote the Old and the New Testaments, whoever those people were, uh, would have never anticipated that that would be an effect of those writings. And there's no, and I don't think there's any mechanism that's a in much, traditions. Yeah, to sort that's of go a much longer conversation. <laughs> I mean, 
I certainly have some thoughts about that, but it's a much longer conversation that has to do with what are the leadership models that are required when you're trying to organize and develop uh, a group. Yeah, and I, and, and I have a deep concern with the closing of the books when, you know, when canons are, are decided. I, I've talked a lot with people about like apocryphal texts, Jewish and Christian. I have a yeah. deep concern about, hey, hey, we've decided at this council that, that we no longer have prophets. It's like, well, <laughs> who decided that? Uh, right. It seems like a prophet is somebody who has, a, you know, like read, is, is it William James? Read William James. It's, it seems like we still have prophets. Yeah. Um, and we're, we actually treat them the same way. We think they're crazy and we kill them. But <laughs> um, that, that sort of closing of things seems to, to be the so, danger that, that science doesn't have. Um, I have only a few more minutes at this point. Okay. Do we, is there anything else you want to cover? Oh, totally. Sorry. Let's, um, so I, I want to we go can do this again, right? Uh, please, please. And I, I can even save this audio and we can, I can not publish it and then we can pick up with the next one and make it all one continuous. That's totally fine. But I think that's a good idea. But, um, yeah, I should have been, I should have been more explicit. I, I'm, I'm not concise and I, I appreciate these conversations. The longer, the we, better. That's actually. right. We should. I mean, and, and it's good, but I mean, there, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot to cover. <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems more than we might've thought, but so biofeedback is paying attention to instruments in a way that allows you to then control the biology that those instruments are measuring. Yep. Okay. So neurofeedback is, is that literally same that. concept applied to the brain and the way that you do that is through uh, putting, so putting surface electrodes that measure the electricity coming from your brain. That's it. Is there a difference between EEG? Like what is an EEG? And I always picture, same, like the that's full, it. Yeah. I picture the full helmet of electrodes, but then so in some of the images I saw, you had select electrodes. What's the, what's the difference? Depending, those? right. You can, an EEG is just basically you're putting a number of electrodes on your head and measuring, and they're on very specific locations. There's a, an international standard for where the electrodes go. So you can compare readings across people, right? And you can come up with norms for people like male, female, by age, gender, and handedness. So you can do that. And all you're literally doing is measuring the electricity coming from your head, just like when you got an EKG, they measured the electricity coming from your heart. There's no difference. Interesting. So you referenced earlier that electricity is measured in two sort of waves. There's a, um, I think, Ampli a slow wave. Amplitude. Amplitude. A amplitude is literally voltage, like in the wall. And so we have, you know, this might not be scientific, but we sort of have like a low humming amplitude. And at the same time, we have these sort of like. Uh, no, amplitude is voltage that's okay. measured in watts. Okay. That's power. So, so then we have enough, we have enough power in our body. We generate enough electricity in our body to light up a 40 watt bulb. Mm. That's that, but that's generating electricity. Okay. So if you measure that voltage at the different spots on your head, you're going to be measuring millionths of a volt. Mm. The amount that you're measuring is literally 
down to millionths of a volt. They're called milliwatts or okay. microvolts. Interesting. And what was the distinction between the slow and fast waves? Because I know that you brought that's, that up. In, that's in if you're measuring, and... right, you're measuring the discharging of the neurons in the brain. You're measuring the electrical discharge and how and how many times a second you're seeing that discharge happen. So you and can count up the number of peaks. Okay. You know how you see an EKG? Sure. If you count the number of peaks, in one second, that's what they call frequency. Interesting. And so the slow waves and the fast waves, they're not happening simultaneously? Oh, it's absolutely. Just, oh, they you, are. Just break, you can break them out. Yeah, you can break them out electronically and you can see, you know, how much of one is being produced compared to another. So when you're asleep, you're going to be producing more of the slower brain waves than the faster ones. When you're awake, it's supposed to be reverse. Hmm. Okay, so that's what you're measuring during neurofeedback, but the the patient, let's call them, isn't necessarily looking at their. They're never. They're almost never looking at that. But the so the the therapeutic part of it, or the is app, that they're getting yeah they're getting feedback in the form one form or another, you know, um, what we use is the video that they're looking at the brightness and the volume changes depending on whether they're producing the pattern of activity that we want. Mm. So as and long as you're producing the pattern that we want you to produce, you get to watch what's on the screen at full brightness and volume. As soon as you stop doing that, the brightness and volume drops by 75%. And, and I know that you were going to say that, um, well, I, I guess I don't know that, but I know that you just said that the, the light and the volume of the screen um, correlates with the the patterns of waves that you're programming for. Correct. Uh, um, and we program there? we program those based on the clinical presentation and the neuropsychological and other testing that we do in order to see how the person's brain is working and where there might be inefficiencies. Okay. And my, my follow-up question was, I, I know that that's the correlation between the screen and the, the actual activity um, of, right. the, of the discharging electricity. What, mm -hmm. is, um, what is, an, like an, this is a semantic problem, but what is an analogous word that we might use? Um, would or, you say that they're concentrating when, when they're cooperating with the program? Are they concentrating? Are they thinking really hard? What exactly no, are they no, doing? No, 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 no. Are they no, getting no, no, into no. a resting this, state? You're, you're still, yeah, you're still thinking this is conscious. Interesting. This is not conscious. And we're going to give you a, yeah, we're going to give you a reward for doing something that you don't really have an awareness necessarily that you're doing. With the goal of becoming we're, we're more rewarding. aware of it. Yeah, it's like the, the analogy I use is with people is, have you ever trained a dog to sit? Yeah. Well, how did you train the dog? You said sit, you pushed the dog's butt down, and then you gave them a treat. And you did that however many times you had to do it so that after a while you could say sit, and it would sit down and expect that you're going to give him a treat. Same thing. You were never 
teaching the dog to speak English. <laughs> that was never the goal. And that mm. was never going to happen. What you did was create a reward conditioning connection between making that noise that the dog could hear and that, and then the behavior of sitting down and getting rewarded. Okay. So what are the different programs that you program to, uh, that would that, be the, the same? That, that, that should definitely be the topic of the next time we talk. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, is there a time in the not too distant future that, that you might be able to, uh, yeah, um, I'll send you a link and you can figure it out. Beautiful. Okay. Awesome. Um, in the meantime, obviously I have all your literature. Would you push me in one direction? I'm also in a PhD program right now and I'm very interested in metacognition and I think there would be a lot of overlap here. Um, no, you should, de yeah, you should de definitely take, take the neurophysiology and, and, and neurofeedback. The, yeah, you should definitely take that program. Look at, look at bcia.org. BC Bob Charlie India Apple.org. Okay. Wonderful. We'll talk next week. Dr. Berman, looking forward to it. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Are you able to turn your camera on or are you not? Oh, let me why why isn't it on? I assume that was your preference. Oh I'm, no, no. I'm glad no. I asked. Should do something different your hair it looks nice yeah it's called washing <laughs> i should try it you never know yeah could work for me yeah do you have a wife who tells you to take a shower i have a girlfriend so she's um she's probably soon she will start becoming more prescriptive exactly yeah hang in there you'll see <laughs> yeah. well how are you i am good um it's a pretty day the air conditioner's working. My granddaughter's playing downstairs with my wife. Oh, I'm sorry to take you from that. How old is she? Just turned two. Awesome. She still likes to jump up and hug Campa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll probably miss the day that she calls you that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I was looking back at our last conversation. Obviously, the one that we had on over the phone wasn't recorded. No. Um, but I, it's probably worth rewinding back to where we left off. Um, yeah. And I found that some of that, some of what we talked about on the phone was was um, would probably be worth revisiting. So, okay. When I look when I look back at our first conversation, we left off right at the edge of of you describing operant conditioning as it relates to neurofeedback and specifically the sort of unconscious operant conditioning. So the, the mechanism that we are basically taking advantage of in this approach is called uh, the orienting reflex. And it's that reflex that when you're sitting on the beach and the seagull flies by, you automatically start tracking the seagull. There's a built-in neurological mechanism for that that's always orienting us to whatever's moving in our field of vision 
which goes back to, you know, when the when the, we heard the twig crack in the in the forest, we then started looking for whether there was something going to come out of the bushes to eat us. Or that we could eat. Yeah. Generally speaking, it was the other way around. Okay. But um, like if we didn't hear, if we didn't see where what we were after and we heard a twig crack, then we're either tracking something we want to hunt or something we want to run away from. Mm. The, the orienting reflex. I guess the premise is that you can, you can manipulate that, though it be automatic. So you can stimulate the orienting reflex by, in our case, changing the brightness and the volume of whatever somebody's looking at on the screen while they're training. Interesting. So if they're, if they're not doing, if they're not moving their brain activity in the desired direction, then we withdraw the reward. Okay. And, and the reward and withdrawal is diminishing the brightness and the volume of whatever's on the screen by 75%. Interesting. So the orienting reflex, I'll come back to the screen in a second, but the orienting reflex, you, you sort of outlined it before that there could be different goals depending on the person, which makes sense. Oh yeah. The protocol that we're, the protocol that we're developing that leans on and uses the orienting reflex as a, you know, reward, no reward, you know, as a reward premise, that's the mechanism is, you know, whatever the quantitative EEG told us was needed. You know, if somebody is not producing enough uh, alpha, you know, eight to 12 Hertz activity in the front of their brain, we'll then set up the protocol so that as long as they're heading in the direction of increasing eight to 12 in the front of their brain, they get to watch whatever they're looking at on the screen with full brightness and volume. And then as soon as they go outside of the zone, the brightness and the volume just boom drops mm. by 80, 75%. As soon as they start doing what we want, the brightness and the volume comes back. Interesting. So, to take it back to the seagull example, there would be some people who are too reactive to the seagull and you're trying to sort of calm their reaction, if for lack mm -hmm. of a better word. And then mm -hmm. would it go in reverse where people are not reactive enough to the seagull and you're trying to stimulate that somehow? Sure, sure, sure. So do you get people... one more than the other? Um, I don't find any value in counting about that. Interesting. I, I, you know, it's like, I've been doing this, we've been doing this for 25 years. That's just not a, a metric I'm keeping track of. Um, I think it probably has to do with the history of what somebody's lived through and what kind of complaints they're having about their, the way their life is going or their functioning that would go one one direction or the other more or less but almost always there's some combination of both interesting so i'm thinking in regards to a student with adhd for example or i know that you do work with alzheimer's 
my guess is that those would be opposite. And I guess that's not the case. That not the, student really. with, the student with ADHD would be, my guess again, would be that the student with ADHD would be trying to, in your words from the last conversation, um, imitate something, the, the brainwave activity of a Tibetan monk, I think were, were your words, as opposed to an Alzheimer's patient probably would be, my guess would be going the opposite direction. Is that? Uh, well, I, I, that's, that's, you know, like, I don't know what the opposite of a Tibetan monk would be. Uh, Howard Stern. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, but um, it, it really is. The diagnostic categories, I think this was a point that I tried to make last time. The diagnostic categories are not really that useful when we're talking about this level of intervention. Because hmm. what, we're, what we're doing is intervening at a very, very basic level that has to do with the, the efficiency of the central nervous system and its ability to respond to stimulation from the environment, both internal and external. So how efficiently, how adaptively somebody can gear their responses to what's happening in the moment is really more what this is about. So it's, it's really uh, all diagnostic categories that would show up in a, you know, the DSM-5 are in some way describing a, an inefficient adaptation to normal life. And what we're doing with the neurofeedback is increasing the efficiency of the central nervous system itself. So ADHD, you know, you tend to see people uh, exerting more effort and putting more energy into uh, the simple act of attending to what's happening in the moment. Whereas people with cognitive decline or traumatic, traumatic brain injury or depression are having difficulty uh, increasing their capacity to attend and respond effectively in the moment. And you, you said earlier that either one of those people might be doing a combination. Because different it's just about control. Of that, yeah because different patterns of activity are occurring in different parts of the brain. So that's why just saying ADHD is an extreme generalization about anybody who's got attention difficulties because what's, what's actually causing their ability, their inability to focus their attention could be coming from you know, 50 or 100 different things going on in their brain. So it, it, it really, it really demands that we get more granular and specific about what's actually happening to that person's brain. And how are how are they organizing how they relate to their current experience? Like what is it, you know, what's going on in their brain and how, the, how their brain is organized to deal with whatever's happening, that's going to show up in the brain mapping and we'll then be able to see how efficiently or inefficiently they're 
bringing to bear all their neural resources. And then we develop the protocol to optimize uh, and make you know, more efficient whatever their particular pattern is. So there isn't really a right or a wrong. It's more efficient or inefficient. And part of that efficiency, we spoke last time we spoke, I, I was sort of wrestling with with how conscious this was. And you were saying it's happening on an unconscious level. But however, if we give you enough feedback, mm. you may then start to develop a more acute sense of what it is that's going on in you that seems to be determining whether you're, you know, getting to watch the movie more or not. You may become more and more aware of your internal state and how you can manage your internal state so that you can get a better score or, you know, do better on the, on the protocol. And so progress in, in the therapeutic sense, li limited to the actual room in which this is done, because I want to get to generalizability in a moment, but the therapeutic progress that you would actually be mapping would be sort of time in that zone. Um, that would be one, that, that could be one thing, um, but we would also be able to see the normalization of the specific areas and networks pathways, we could see the ongoing normalization of those particular pathways over, over the sessions. Because hmm. we, we do have a normative database that we can compare to by age, gender, and left and right-handed. Interesting. So is there a diagnostic at the beginning to sort of compare? Yeah, that's what the quantitative EEG is. Okay. So we use that. We use that as a baseline because a lot of people want to know, well, where am I at? And how do sure. I know whether I've gotten anywhere? Well, sure. here's where you're at. Now let's do the training program. And now here's where you're at three months later. It's like going to the gym, you know? <clears throat> It's the same as going to the gym with the blue card. What's the blue card? You know, card? I'm doing this many reps at this much mm -hmm. weight when I start. And, you know, six weeks later, I'm doing this many reps with this much weight. And I, and I look like this. Interesting. So I'm imagining at the, on day one or day one of the actual treatment, <clears throat> excuse me, my screen might look sort of erratic. Um, and, and oh, I see what you mean. No, my you, actual you, video screen. So it might be bright and then down and then bright and then down. And we'll control how much of that is going on so that you're you're successful maybe around 80 percent of the time, no matter what. Mm. So you're you're trying to give me you're slowing the feedback down to sort of give me that target. That's a little bit more manageable. Interesting. So you're almost tweaking the zone of proximal oh, development always. or something like that. Interesting. Yeah, we're always we're always moving. Yes, we're always systematically increasing the level of difficulty mm. as you progress and get and get do better. So it's almost as if you're making my range much bigger at first. Could be, could be, 
that what will get you the reward, like if you're not producing enough alpha in the front of your head, will then reward you for producing uh, a 5% increase. Interesting. Or a 1% or a 1% increase. Okay. Every, you know, in, a, in, in five minutes, if you can increase your rate, you know, 1%, you'll get a reward, you'll be you'll be rewarded. And then it'll be, you'll have to increase it 5% to get a reward, then six, then seven, then 10, then, you know, sure. So we're shaping, it's it's behavioral analysis, it's behavior therapy, it's behavior therapy. And we're just shaping the reward structure. Fascinating. Yeah, it's before it's behavioral conditioning, just like any other, you know, good dog, sit, good dog, here's a treat. Interesting. But it's happening on a completely unconscious down level, here level. That, right. that starts to creep into the conscious level. Interesting. It um, may. It may. It may not. If we were, this again is, we're talking about the neurofeedback. If we were talking about regular biofeedback like uh, skin temperature, right? You can actually be thinking about your hands getting warmer. And the more you concentrate on your hand getting warmer, you will succeed in your hand getting warmer. And that's not happening. I, I've asked this question before and, I, and I'm, I'm nervous to ask it again because I, I don't know if I totally understood. If, if I am the patient and I'm sitting there and I'm aiming for the reward, what am I actually doing to control that screen? Am I able to think anything or do anything or am I leaning forward? It may, it may, it may turn out that you will notice that certain patterns of thinking or certain Mm. patterns of respiration or certain patterns of physical tension are actually contributing to a better or worse score. Interesting. Just like um, some kids have figured out right off the bat that, um, can you still see me? Yeah. Some kids figured out right off the bat that if they hold their breath, they get a better score. And I go, hmm, that's interesting. So how long are you going to do that for? <laughs> well, yeah. What do you, what do you think of that strategy kind of over the long term? <laughs> And they're like, uh, oh, right. Yeah, I'd be dead. Yeah. So what do you think? And they're like, nah, okay, no. And then what do they do? Do they start experimenting with their breath? Does that happen? Interesting. Yeah. I have to stop so they'll start paying attention. And, and all, we're, all we're actually trying to do when I do that little, you know, back and forth is to encourage them to pay attention in an internalizing way to really develop what we, what psychology refers to as internal locus of control. And that if, if I had to say, what is, what is the main purpose of all of this neurofeedback and behavioral conditioning and blah, blah, blah. If I had to say, what's the one thing it's most important, it's developing internal locus of control. And neurofeedback is just one way of doing that. And to me, the most direct 
non-pathologizing and immediately uh, comprehensible way. Okay. <clears throat> when I was doing a little bit of research poking around, I was interested in um, what the detractors were saying. Um, oh. To neurofeedback? Yes. Okay. I, well, I found that people find it very woo. And it's, it, I mean, this is worth a book in and of itself. How, how people have an opinion and they'll say, yeah, neurofeedback's a little, it's a little wacky. And then if you ask them to say anything else, they can't say anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and right. I'm not, I'm not necessarily going out asking a ton of people, but I'm, I'm, when I do talk to people who I think have heard about it or um, I have reason to suspect they might've heard about it. I'm always surprised how quickly they put it at arm's distance. Um, I don't really get any sight. They don't cite anything. And then it's like, yeah, it's a little, it's a little woo woo. And I think, well, um, Kevin, what percentage of people in the United States are uh, participating in uh, individual psychotherapy? Percentage, I would say, I would guess uh, less than 5%. Okay. <laughs> well, let, let me, I'll speed it up, but let me run down this thing. So I thought, um, I was thinking about our conversation and the heart rate thing and the breathing and how you, you can control way more than you thought. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then one of the most articulate um, detractors said something along the lines of what they understood that the research has suggested is that it's not generalizable. And I thought, meaning it, you know, you could get really good at that game and then, you know, not, it doesn't really equate to anything else. And I immediately thought of those sort of apps, the sort of brain training apps that get you really good at math or rounding up tips or whatever. And again, I heard the same thing about them. They get you really good at those games and then it's not generalizable. You're not a better math student or something like that. Right. But, but then what I couldn't reconcile that with was, okay, I go to neurofeedback, I sit in a room, I do this um, operant conditioning exercise that essentially attempts to increase my locus of control. <clears throat> I go out into the world. The argument is that it's not generalizable. That exercise, though, sounds a lot to me like meditation. <laughs> it's like, it seems like computer facilitated meditation. And yet, all you see and all you hear is how generalizable meditation is. Exactly. And the reason is because it's not engaging. It's not engaging you in a particular task that only uh, activates a particular neural circuit. Um, I'm sorry if I don't understand. What do you mean exactly? The Sudoku in, or crossword puzzles have you focusing on and activating specific pathways and specific act levels of activity in your brain. Neurofeedback and meditation are much more systemic and global activities that are involving your entire central nervous system in a, in a, in a very complete way. And so that, that said, the operant conditioning at the level that we're talking about, 
and the, the purpose being to enhance neural efficiency means that we're aligning with the basic principle of conservation of energy, right? Second law of thermodynamics. So the system is becoming more efficient. Mm. Conservation of energy then becomes its own reinforcer for the improved, more efficient way of organizing brain activity. The pattern becomes self-reinforcing. And you're saying that meditation exactly is exact our our ways in which you are creating a self-reinforcing structural change in your entire central nervous system which is also why they've measured um 10 to 12 percent increases in hippocampal volume literal growth of hippocampal tissue from people doing eight weeks of uh you know insight or mindfulness meditation are there are there similar results with neurofeedback because i sure I was... FM, yeah dan i mean yeah i mean there's fmri changes of you know changes in the nucleus accumbens in people with uh pain, chronic pain where they did three five minute segments of fmri guided neurofeedback right and their perception of chronic pain decreased by 50 percent after three five minute trials of targeting exactly the nucleus accumbens which was the pain center for the and so, yeah, it's, you know. Interesting. Yeah, it's not, and yet, it's, it, it's not woo-woo if you know how to read the research and know what the research means. Well, it's amazing how resistant people don't seem to be to, to meditation now. And yet this seems there's an efficiency to neurofeedback that almost looks like computer facilitated uh, meditation yeah. to me. It almost seems it, having, it's because, having meditated myself or seven years now right there's there's you you risk a and if it not only you risk an inefficiency but you risk an attrition rate if you ask people to stay in that for that long um you know yeah. you talk about only three percent of people do psychotherapy i would imagine even less would be able to meditate for that long um well and people are, more and more people are meditating partly because they're doing it in groups and they're doing it as a, as part of a social experience as part of a spiritual experience is part of, you know, it's part of a lifestyle. Whereas psychotherapy, you know, it isn't as much of a lifestyle thing unless you live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Interesting. But, but I always see neurofeedback as, as it seems um, rife for having the sort of fad that meditation oh. is having. And, and, I, and I don't mean that in no. a pejorative. I think that People yeah. probably benefit from if if the madness of crowds is being pointed at meditation, then great. Yeah, uh, but I almost yeah. see that it would be really interesting. This, I'm surprised. You said at the very beginning of our conversations that this research has been going on for I think you might have said 40 years. At more now, and yet it doesn't seem to have made it into the mainstream yet. How 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 much how many states? have approved neurofeedback as a reimbursable service through Medicaid. How many? I don't know. 
why, why is that? That's a conversation for another time because <laughs> I, have, I have somebody I need to talk to now. That's totally fine. Um, okay, I'm going to put these two videos together if you don't mind, push it sure. out there, and then I'd love to have a part two. I was looking at that website that you put me on and I was looking, I'm going to talk to a neurofeedback researcher at the University of Pitt. Um, Good. So I would love to have a part two at some point, but I'll, I'll definitely do some more research in the interim. All right, Kevin. And then, uh, yeah, let's be in touch. I'm, I'm fascinated with how okay. this overlaps with the, the reading I'm doing. Well, and if St. Joe's ever wants to develop a program for enhancing cognitive and academic performance or, or athletic performance, let me know. I'd be fascinated. Um, do you do you have a, any sort of like packaging that you put together for the Westfield School or anything like that? Oh, uh, no, but I can certainly we can go back and forth about that. OK, I, I'd be really interested with piling it with a couple of families and, and seeing sure. what they'd be interested. Absolutely. In. We can do a Zoom with a couple of families that are interested and I'll, you know, put up a, a PowerPoint and go through it with them. Awesome. All right. Dr. Berman, thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.